According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, where else would we find our growth? From the living and abiding word of God. We return to the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. Last week we were in Isaiah 60, the rise and shine chapter. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. I successfully resisted singing that in church last Sunday morning, the Arky Arky song, but I have been humming it all week. It's been, a, it's been an interesting week. <laughs> Moving on, though, to Isaiah 61. It's actually a very powerful chapter for a lot of reasons, not only for what this chapter contains, but for how our Lord used it in Luke chapter 4. And we have an example for us in terms of how Jesus Christ used the Word of God in His teaching ministry. And the blessings we have to develop the hermeneutic we employ, that is, our understanding of interpretation. Why do we have the hermeneutic we have? Why do we interpret the Bible the way we do? And why do other denominations interpret the Bible the way they do? Because our our methods are, are largely different. But why? Why do we pick ours instead of theirs? Because we like ours better? (laughs) Because it fits with our theology? We pick ours because it's the only one that's fair to the text and, maybe even more importantly, because it's the method that Jesus Christ employed. And if we are imitators of Christ, that means we should imitate Him in His ministry, in His teaching, in His allegiance to the Word of God, in the reverence that He showed to the Word of God. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time this morning, not only in Isaiah chapter 61, but we're going to go to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see the Bible class that Jesus Christ taught from Isaiah chapter 61. And, and I don't find it accidental that it's primarily, it's the only sermon we ever hear Jesus preaching that he's preaching from a text itself out of the Old Testament. He's in the synagogue, and he opens the scroll, and he, that's the chapter that was assigned to him. And so he accepted the assignment And then he gave the application. And we're going to see that here in a moment. I do want to open us up with a word of prayer, though, that we might have the opportunity to set aside any distractions, any carnality, any uh, anything that's going to hinder you from the Word of God this morning. Deal with that quietly before the Lord in silent prayer. Confess what needs to be confessed. And let's ask the Father to bless our time in His truth today. Shall Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, not in our own name. We're here in Jesus' name. Father, in our own name, by what we've earned and deserved, in our own credit, we don't deserve to be here. Who are we? That the Word of God should be opened unto us, that the Creator God of the universe would communicate His mind to us creatures. And yet, Father, that's exactly what you've done. You have saved us. You have purchased us. You have exalted us. You have placed us in union with your Son. And now, Father, you fellowship with us like you fellowship with your Son. We have full adult standing before your presence. Father, uh, I I rejoice in this. I thank you that the Word of God is going to go forth this morning. It already went forth last hour. It's going to go forth again this hour. And it doesn't depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It's entirely dependent upon how faithful you are to open the eyes of our understanding, to feed us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness again this hour. Minister your word to us. And might we be blessed as we see the prophecy of Isaiah 
speaking the very words of Christ 600, 700 years ahead of time. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, what we have here is clear guidance on rightly dividing the Word of God. Isaiah 61 provides us clear guidance on rightly dividing the Word of Truth. We're commanded to rightly divide the Word of Truth. We quote 2 Timothy a lot, right? As workmen needing not to be ashamed, let's be diligent to present ourselves before Him as workmen needing not to be ashamed. Doing what? Rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Accurately handling the Word of Truth. But in that command, in, in Timothy, doesn't tell us how. <laughs> okay, well, how do we rightly divide? On what basis do we rightly divide? What is our criteria by which we can classify things as one or the other? Isaiah 61 gives us that. It gives us our literal hermeneutic. It gives us the controlling authority for how we rightly divide. And it's not our imagination. And it's not our wishful thinking. And it's not our theology. It's not what we want it to say. It's what it does say. What it does say and how it says it and how we divide it, Jesus Christ is going to give us this. So we do rightly divide the word of truth. We do use a literal hermeneutical principle. We actually use several literal hermeneutical principles. And we do so not because our seminary taught us to do so. We do so because the Bible itself does so. That's what the word of God does. It shows us the hermeneutic. God didn't just simply give us one text, boom, there it is. He gave us a Hebrew canon, and then he gave us a Greek canon. And in between, we have the ministry of Jesus Christ, whereby he used the Hebrew canon, the the Old Testament we call it. He taught from the Old Testament and demonstrated for us how we should use the Old Testament. See, so we want to use these literal principles. Jesus Christ accepted the Word of God. He had a far higher regard for the Word of God than most Christians do today. We live in a, in a, in a postmodern culture that minimizes the value of the written Word of God. It dismisses it. It ignores it. It picks and chooses what parts it likes, what parts it doesn't believe in. Uh, we, we're in this postmodern culture that believes, that, that believes verse 1 is a lie. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They don't believe that. They believe Big Bang, evolution, everything else. They don't believe the first verse. Why should they believe anything else after that? All right? And because they have a low regard for Scripture, there's no wonder that their Christian walk is a a train wreck. I'm hoping that this hour will restore a high regard for Scripture and will help to explain why we use the hermeneutic we do. Okay, hermeneutic just means the, the principle for interpretation. Why do we interpret the way that we interpret? Why do we take it so literally? Why do, you th- why do we think there was an Adam and Eve? Why do we think there, wa- there was a Noah's flood? Why do we think all these things really did happen? Because the Bible said they happened. And Jesus affirmed what the Bible says happened. See? And if we violate that, I think we're doomed. Understand, Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness, and every single time he was tempted, he said, it is written. Isn't that powerful? He stopped the devil in his tracks by saying, it is written. And in order for that to be the closing argument, you've got to have a high regard for Scripture. You've got to accept the inspiration of Scripture, the God-breathed inerrant canon of Scripture. You are defending the literal interpretation of Scripture. Anything short of that falls short of the imitation of Christ we're expected to pursue. It's also the only hermeneutic that lets you be noble-minded like the Bereans and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. 
All right, so don't just swallow what I'm dishing up this morning because Pastor Bob said so. Check it out. Search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. But when you search the Scriptures, guess what? You've got to read the same Scriptures I'm reading. And you've got to read with the same hermeneutic I'm reading. It's the only way to validly apply that command. So let's look at it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Is Isaiah speaking for himself here? Or is he speaking on behalf of Jesus here? Okay, it's actually both. Isaiah is speaking of his own anointing, his own prophetic ministry, but he's prophetically looking ahead and speaking in the first person on behalf of Jesus. So I'm going to back up again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I'm going to stop there. That's verses 1 through 3. All right. It goes beyond that, and we're going to go beyond that. We'll cover the whole chapter today. But notice how complete that message is. Notice how verses 1 through 3 are a package. There's no break in the middle of those verses, but Jesus puts a break there. And that's going to be huge for us. When Jesus teaches this passage in Luke chapter 4, he puts a break in there. And we need to understand why. And it's plainly obvious why once you look at it, and we'll explain it here this morning. But that is our methodology. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to put breaks in certain places, okay? Not because we want to, not because it fits our theology, but because the the context of, of the word of God demands it in that application, see? Now, in Isaiah's application, it makes no sense to have a break there. But in Jesus' application, you've got to have a break there. And for you and I today in the church age, you've got to have a break there. Because that's where we live. We live in that break. Okay? And so this is, this is just a, a beautiful thing. And I'm doing myself a huge favor because much of this comes back tonight at 7.30. Much of this concept is part of our systematic theology tonight. Norm Geisler, Volume 4, is about the hermeneutics of prophecy. And why do we use the same hermeneutic with prophecy that we use with every other part of Scripture? Okay? So I'm going to teach this class twice today. Now, uh, again, we've read verses 1 through 3. Notice it's in unit. Notice it's comprehensive. Notice it's together. And it's in complete agreement with last week and every other week we've had when Isaiah has given a prophetic anticipation of the coming of Messiah the freedom the Messiah brings, and the reign and the glory that Messiah provides for Israel. All right? That's what Isaiah was all about. Isaiah didn't know there were going to be two Advents. (laughs) Isaiah didn't know that Jesus would come the first time and then die on the cross, and then there would be 2,000 years until the second Advent. No Old Testament prophet knew that. And so almost all, I mean the vast majority, a huge percentage of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, we look back at it now with hindsight and we go, oh, that's kind of a, a blend of first and second advent all wrapped up together. And sometimes that bothers people in the church. It doesn't bother me at all. I love it. I think it's a glory. And I think it's the wisdom of God to, to give the messianic prophecies in such a fashion. 
And it allows us to illustrate today why we interpret the Bible the way that we do. All right. So uh, let's look at Luke chapter 4. You can hold your finger there if you like, uh, or your, stick a church bulletin there, whatever you want to do. Maybe you got a ribbon or a bubblegum wrapper. Um, Luke chapter 4. And we'll see how Jesus does this. The screen says, starting in verse 16, but I'll back up a couple of verses. Notice this is immediately after the temptation. The the temptation, as Luke records it, is in uh, verses uh, 1 through 13 there. So we get to verse 14. I mean, we're talking early in his ministry. He has the baptism. He has, uh, which begins his ministry, that's his anointing, and then he's driven to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. His first 40 days are conflict. Finishes that. I love Luke 4, 13. When the devil had finished every temptation, what does it say? He gave up and left him alone for the rest of his life? No. It says he left him until an opportune time. Understand that. If you have a victory today, Satan's not going to give up and say, oh, oh, well, that's a strong believer. He's going to use doctrine. He's going to pass the test. I won't waste my time with him ever again. No. He just shakes it off and says, okay, you won this time. I'll come back. Tomorrow you could be carnal. All right? I'll come back. There'll be an opportune time. So don't get prideful over a victory. All right. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And so right off the bat, his anointing, his uh, then he disappears for 40 days. But then when he reappears, he's back in Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues and man alive. Is it taking, taking people by storm? This is teaching with power. This is teaching with authority. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue of the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, it's important, as was his custom, okay? This passage is what we call normative. And we can, we can view this as, as not just a one-off, not just an exception to the rule. This is the rule. This was his custom. This was the practice. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found in the place where it is written, what Pastor Bob read this morning, right? Isaiah 61. But notice, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Okay? In fact, if you kind of flip back and forth between those two verses, you can see them side by side, right? Or put them in parallel windows in your software. All right? Notice what he's doing. He read verse 1. He gets to verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He doesn't read 1 through 3. He reads verse 1 and he reads a third of verse 2. Not even half of verse 2. A third of verse 2. And he stops. He doesn't finish the second third and the third third of verse 2 and he doesn't even get to verse 3. He stops after verse 1 and verse 2a. Okay? And he, he can't read... 2b or 2c and he can't read verse 3 because he stops with to proclaim the favorable year of the lord then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him 
You know, it'd be like if the song leader gets halfway through a verse, right? You know, Savior like a shepherd lead, and then he closes the hymnal and sits down. And you're just like, wait a minute, okay? I mean, that just, you just, you just left hanging, <laughs> right? And um, that's what he does. He just shuts the reading off right there. This is what we call rightly dividing the word of truth. And sometimes it takes precision. I mean, all the time it takes precision. But, you know, right there, to divide it between 2A and B, the way that he did there within that verse, I think is critical. It gives us the methodology that we need to employ, the care that we apply to every Messianic text. That's why we have to distinguish between first advent and second advent. Okay? Now, Isaiah couldn't do that, but Jesus could and Jesus did. And you and I could, can, and we must. We absolutely must. Kind of easy for our sake because first advent's done, right? It's done. We read about it in the Gospels. Okay? He did what he did in his first advent. But what is not yet done is everything that's left undone. But it has to be. It has to happen. So, he sits down. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And with that message, he does so many things. With that message, he communicates the hermeneutic, one of several literal hermeneutical principles, all right? But specifically, the hermeneutic of necessary fulfillment necessary fulfillment every prophecy god utters by necessity it is necessary if he says it will happen it will happen it cannot not happen because god is truth anything he says is true every prophecy he utters is true it becomes a literal hermeneutical principle See, and it can't be allegorized. It has to be literal. It can't be explained away. It has to be literal. And we'll explain more on that tonight at 7.30. Because a promise isn't a promise if you're weaseling out of it later on and explaining how, well, I'm really keeping it. I'm just keeping it with somebody else. Okay? Well, I'm really keeping it, but I'm, you know, when I gave it to you before, I didn't really mean that. I was only kidding. All right? You thought that was for real? Okay. Now I'm quoting Word Al Yankovic lyrics. But, the, the, but that's the principle. All right? Everyone that goes to the allegory, uh, allegory mode thinks that God was either kidding or lying or somehow wrong when he made those literal promises. Because Isaiah didn't take them allegorically. He took them literally. We'll have more to say on that as well. All right. Now, a couple of things going on here. Just like David in Psalm 22, we have a a powerful prophetic message whereby the prophet is uttering a first-person perspective prophecy from the lips of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is uttering a first-person prophecy. Isaiah is not standing up in the third person saying, thus saith the Lord, here's what he's saying to you. He actually opens his mouth and speaks I in the first person, I. Okay, or me, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And it's literally true for the person Isaiah in the 7th century BC, but it's also prophetically true of Jesus Christ. 
And Isaiah is speaking the words of Christ from his own mouth 700 years ahead of time. It's like David when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's uttering the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. David sees the cross, but he sees the cross from the first person. He's put in a vision to see the cross by hanging on the cross in the vision. See. And who knows? I mean, the Father could have brought him forward in time and put him on that cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, given him the perspective that Jesus had in his humanity on that cross. But in some visionary form, David saw it and spoke about it. Spoke about all the crucifiers, all the mockers, all the tongue waggers, and all the dividing of the garments, and all everything. He described the whole crucifixion a thousand years before it happened, and he did it in the first person. Read Psalm 22 sometime, and you'll see that. Isaiah 61 is like Psalm 22, in that it is a prophetic first-person announcement. The very words of Christ. These are Christ's words. All right? And Isaiah is uttering them. Now Jesus reads this text, but he stopped his reading after one and one-third verses. And the reason why he stopped there, he said, so that he could proclaim the fulfillment. He said, this day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. So as I go back to Isaiah 61 now, and I look at these first three verses, and I'm looking at first advent. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Sure. The baptism of the river Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove. We get that. The Lord has anointed me. That was his anointing that started his earthly ministry to bring good news to the afflicted. He was preaching the gospel, preaching good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's, that was his ministry. We read the freedom message in John chapter 8 the other day. He had that freedom message. He was proclaiming the good news of salvation to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What a, what a great title for Calvary, right? What a great title for what Galatians calls the fullness of time when God sent His Son to be, to be born of a woman and to go to the cross. The favorable year of the Lord, the, the, the day of our, of our visitation when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's a first Advent message right there. But he can't read the second, the middle part of verse 2, and he can't read the third part of verse 2. The day of vengeance of our God? What vengeance did he apply in first Advent? You know, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where's the vengeance? Okay. Judas wanted it. The, the, the zealots wanted it. I think probably several of the disciples wanted it. They wanted to call down fire and nuke some Samaritans. They wanted, to, they wanted to throw off the bonds of Rome. They wanted a whole lot of vengeance. But like a lamb before its shearers is silent, Jesus Christ very humbly submitted to the will of God the Father and He went to the cross. He died that we could have eternal life. Vengeance is still coming. That doesn't mean that He changed His mind and that vengeance is off the table. No, it's still coming. Why is it coming? Because he said it's coming. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Now he's either a liar, or he was only kidding, or he changed his mind, or well, it was, it was you took it literally when he gave it, but it was really allegorical and you got to... No. He said it, he meant it, it is written, and it will happen. By necessity, it has to happen. 
because it has been uttered in the written word. Not only did he say it, he put it in writing. <laughs> okay, He's on record. Humans and angels alike, they know what's coming because God said what was coming. Vengeance is coming. But it's second advent when it comes. And we know that from other passages. We know that Armageddon and tribulation. We know when vengeance comes. We know that, that vengeance has to come to regather Israel and to bring them into the land. Likewise, not just vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. They're going to get that millennial comfort after the morning of the tribulation. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Well, they're going to get the ashes first. That's called the tribulation. He brings them through that. The recompense is in his hand. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. They're not called that today. They're called a lot of things today. Okay? By the Muslims that want to kill them and by the misguided theological train wreck Christians that want to take their place. Okay? But in the millennial kingdom, this is what they will be called. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So the rest of that is second advent in its fulfillment. And so here's our hermeneutic. Remember, the Old Testament prophets didn't know. They, they, they in fact, wrestled over the whole question about the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. They were, they were struggling. And if I can take one side trip today, I'll take it now. And let's look at 1 Peter. Okay. Chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1.10, and if this one isn't on your refrigerator, it needs to be, okay? Or on your mirror when you're shaving, or somewhere where you've got it memorized. We need to have a handle on 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, such as Isaiah in chapter 61, of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't lazy. They were careful. They weren't uh, sloppy. They searched the scriptures and they inquired of the Lord. Searches and inquiries. They were scouring the Hebrew canon, trying to find their answers. Couldn't find it. They inquired of the Lord as spirit and dwelled prophets are uh, eligible to do, even entitled to do. And no canon they they scoured and no inquiring of the Lord ever gave them the answer they wanted. Seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They had no clue of the two advents. They just struggled. They knew that there was a suffering Messiah. They knew that there was a reigning Messiah. And so they, they, they debated. They went back and forth. The rabbis hashed it out. They came up with theories they didn't know. So half of them said, you know, I think there's two Christs. There's a Messiah ben uh, Joseph and there's Messiah ben David. And they invented a whole concept of two different Christs. And they found their solution was a person solution. And their solution was there's two persons, of the, of, there's two persons to answer the suffering Christ and the glorious Christ. Others came along and said, no, there's only one Messiah. He has to come two times. Okay? What person or time? Seeking to know what person or time What's the answer? Now, you and I know the answer is time. The answer is one Messiah coming two times. We know that answer now, but we have the hindsight of a, of a New Testament. <laughs> okay? We have a hindsight of knowing what first advent was. We have, the, we have this, the New Testament scriptures to make it clear. And here's what they were told. 
it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you. They were told that another people would be given another canon. They were told that a people after them are going to have a greater insight than they're going to have. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel knew that a later people would have greater understanding than them. They were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, the answer to the Old Testament prophets comes in the New Testament doctrine. Okay? Again, this is our hermeneutic. Things into which angels long to look. Not even the angels were briefed about this. All right? Again, it's the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of God in keeping mystery unrevealed until the time comes to unfold the mystery that is the church, the body of Christ. Not even the angels knew. So, Jesus read this text and stopped his reading after one and one-third verses. The reason why he read it is because he was distinguishing between fulfilled and unfulfilled. Distinguishing between what was fulfilled and what is yet to be fulfilled and still a valid future promise. Okay? I kind of want to stop using the term unfulfilled. Because unfulfilled speaks of a failure. There's fulfilled... And then there's the not yet fulfilled. I think not yet is better than un. Okay? Not yet fulfilled, but guaranteed to be still fulfilled someday. It has to, or God's a liar. So, we do the same thing today. We rightly divide between first advent and second advent. We rightly divide between Israel and the church. We rightly divide a whole host of things. And one of the best criteria we have is the criteria of literal fulfillment of prophecy. And we don't cave and compromise and try to find an allegorical fulfillment and say, ooh, there it is. Oh, here's a Bible code. Oh, here's an unlocked mystery. No, it's literally fulfilled. He comes humble riding on a colt. Guess what? He came humble riding on a colt. He will be born of a virgin. Guess what? He was born of a virgin. Okay? Every single First Advent prophecy was fulfilled literally. You didn't have to allegorize any of them. You didn't have to weasel around it. You didn't have to find some explanation for it. It was literally fulfilled the way he said it was going to happen. So too with the Second Advent prophecies. They have to also have literal fulfillment or the First Advent prophecies don't make any sense. Especially when, like Isaiah 61, it's all the same prophecy. It is organically connected as a single prophecy. And if the first half is fulfilled literally, so too must the second half be fulfilled literally. Okay? The guarantee of literal fulfillment is a key hermeneutical mandate. It is a key hermeneutical mandate. And that's why every branch of theology that does not have a literal future for the Jewish people is violating this very principle. God said that the Jews have a future in Israel, a millennial kingdom with the son of David sitting sitting on the throne of David. And he said it, he meant it, it, he cannot lie to David. It will happen. Has it happened yet? We can say it's unfulfilled as of today, but it is still yet to be fulfilled and absolutely certain. It must be fulfilled, but it's yet future. It doesn't happen yet. Netanyahu is not the son of David. He's not on the throne of David. 
Okay, the Knesset is not the throne of David. It is still future. That the Davidic throne has been vacated since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, took Zedekiah off that throne. It's been vacated ever since. All right, and that's 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 huge. Jesus was entitled to it, but he never took it. Not in his first advent. Zerubbabel was entitled to it, never took it. What a humble man was Zerubbabel. He brings a wave of captives back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He brings them back. He is the heir of David. He is entitled to that throne. He doesn't take it. He serves the Persians as a governor, as a Persian governor in the very city that belongs to him. But he doesn't take it. Isn't that glorious? All right. But it will happen. It has to happen. God said it was going to happen. So it is future. It is future. Um, Luke chapter 24. Let's get a look at this. Luke chapter 24. So we're going to spend more time in Luke than we are in Isaiah 61 this morning. Maybe. Probably not. We'll be back on Isaiah before you know it. But Luke 24. I want to show you a couple of knuckleheads and then I'll show you 12 more knuckleheads. Okay? Because the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they're the first couple of knuckleheads. All right? And then the disciples after that, the 12, because Matthias had to have been there. Judas is gone, but Matthias is there in the upper room. Okay? Downing Thomas misses the first one, but he gets there for the second one. Luke 24 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Why? Because he said on the third day, he would rise from the dead. And all the Old Testament prophets said on the third day, he would rise from the dead. The sign of Jonah is the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? And these disciples are struggling because they've not adopted the hermeneutic Jesus gave them when he was preaching to them in the synagogues. And so Emmaus Road, verse 13. Uh, two knuckleheads going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Okay, they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. You know, believers are great about talking about you know current events, politics, Fox News, whatever. Here's all the latest things that are happening, all the latest and greatest things. The scandal in Jerusalem. We crucified the Christ, and then Jesus walks up. Okay, you ever talk about somebody and then oh there they are? Well, they don't know that's him, but they're talking about him. And their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And so he says, what are you talking about? What are these words you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? What's going on? And, and they're, they're stumped. And they're, they're sad. They're depressed. They don't want to talk about it. You know, with each other they're talking about it. They don't want to talk about it with him, the stranger. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of these things that have taken here in these days? You've got to be the, the only clueless person in town. Everybody knows that Jesus died on Friday. He says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. What things? And he said, Jesus, the Nazarene, a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of the God and all the people. Well, they're not wrong about that. A little incomplete, but as far as they took it, they were right. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You see that? We were hoping he was going to fulfill all those second advent prophecies. Well, what about the first advent prophecies? Well, we don't pay attention to those. We don't like those. Those are, those are sad. Those are bad. Okay? 
over time, every first advent prophecy was ignored. You can imagine it doesn't preach well. <laughs> you know, what rabbi wants to preach the, the death of the Messiah? But they were looking forward to second advent. He didn't fulfill it. Well, how about that? We were hoping that he was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel. Guess we were wrong. He wasn't the Christ. Okay? A bunch of morons. Indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Okay? Now they're double stupid because Jesus had told them what was going to happen on the third day. And yet, if you don't have a literal hermeneutic, if you're not rightly dividing the word of truth, if you're not oriented to the necessity of what God said has to happen, he told them he had to go to the cross. He told them he had to die. And he told them that he was going to rise on the third day. First two things happened. Why are they so skeptical about the third thing happening? Besides, also, some women among us amazed us when they went to the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find his body. So what do you think? Was he true? Did he rise from the dead like you said he was? Well, can't trust women. Come on. They tell all kinds of things. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble. And when they were at the tomb early in the morning, they didn't find him, saying that they'd seen a vision of angels and he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and we found it just as the women said, but... We didn't see him. So yeah, the tomb was empty, but we don't know what they did with the body. We don't know what happened to him. Now look what he calls them. Okay? I've been calling him knucklehead the whole time. It's because he called him this. He said, Oh, foolish man, and slow of heart. You know, that leads to hardness of heart. Starts with slowness. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice, not some of what the prophets have spoken, all of what the prophets have spoken. Don't pick and choose the things you like of what the prophets spoke and then ignore the parts you didn't like. You have to, by faith, accept and believe all that the prophets have spoken. You can only do that with a literal hermeneutic. And you can only do that if you're rightly dividing the word of truth as Jesus is doing on a fulfilled and not yet fulfilled basis. He says, was it not necessary? See, the necessity of fulfilled Scripture. It is, ne- it is necessary. It's a have to. God has to do what He said He would do. It is a compulsion in God's case because it's, it's the nature of God to be true to Himself. He cannot say something and then not bring it about. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Yes. Necessary because of God's faithfulness, God's truth, God's prophecy, and also necessary because it was the only way to redeem fallen humanity. Of course it was necessary. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, notice, ooh, how about that? Beginning with Moses, okay, so it's systematic. It starts with Genesis and encompasses the whole canon of Scripture. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that includes Obadiah and some of the other minor ones that we usually ignore, okay? <laughs> you cannot rightly divide the word of truth if you're ignoring a lot of it. It's whole counsel of God's word. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. It is illegitimate in inductive reasoning to leave out some of the lines of argument, the evidence that you're looking at. You have a flawed study. You come to damaged conclusions. You must examine all of Scripture 
And you must rightly divide with a literal hermeneutic as Jesus is illustrating. All right. Um, Same thing happens later on when he teleports into Jerusalem. They have to run back and it's like a seven mile jog for them. Jesus gets to teleport back. All right. And so here's the disciples in the upper room. The doors are locked. The windows are shut. They're terrified. And he pops in there and says, peace be to you. Down in verse 36. You ever think you were alone in a room and then somebody says something and you jump out of your skin because you didn't think they were there? Okay. And that's not teleportation. That's just sneaking up on somebody. But um, kind of fun. But all right. You can imagine you're afraid of the, the Pharisees. You're, the, you, Jesus was just executed. You're in the upper room. You're locked away. You probably have lookouts at the door. You know, one of those slave girls or somebody. And, um, and then all of a sudden he says, peace be to you. And they're startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? In other words, don't you have a literal hermeneutic? Didn't, didn't that tell you I'd be here on the third day? Why are you shocked to see me? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself, touch me and see. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he eats with them. But notice, as he starts teaching them, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, not most things, not a lot of things, he's not Nostradamus, he doesn't get a few things right here and there and much of it he gets wrong. Everything. God has a 100% record on all of his prophecy. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the whole collection of Hebrew canon. That's the Tanakh right there. That's the, that's the Hebrew Bible. Okay? Must be fulfilled. You see that? must be fulfilled it's not optional it's a must and it's a must on god's behalf god has to get it done because god said he was going to do it he said he was going to do it and he put it in writing it's going to happen all right and this is how now that we've that jesus has completed his first advent work we are very simple in our part to then take the totality of every old testament messianic prophecy Find the 116 of them that were fulfilled in first advent. Okay? And then find the whatever it is, 400 and whatever many. It's, it's more than first advent. Second advent has much more. Okay? Look at every single one fulfilled in first advent and see that they were all done literally. And then look at the ones that are not yet fulfilled and say, all right, when are these going to happen? They're not going to happen in the church age. <laughs> okay? Those weren't prophecies to the church or for the church. They're going to happen after the church is gone. They're going to happen in the tribulation, in the millennium, in the, in the second advent, in the millennium, in the uh, new heavens and new earth. They are all yet future. Must still be fulfilled. Have to be. Have to be. And so we have this. Thus it was written. So notice though, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures biggest hang-up on a literal hermeneutic is closed-minded people, okay? He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Thus it is written. Get grabbed eye, it is written. Same thing he said when he was being tempted. It is written. The Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. All right, well, there it is. 
Now, when we get past the break, okay, Isaiah 61 now, you can save your finger, rescue your finger, bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have there. Get back to Isaiah 61, verse 2 and following. This is all millennium. This is, this is the future. This is what Israel can look forward to. Uh, vengeance, all the recompense upon the Gentiles, vengeance to rescue Israel, comfort to those who mourn, uh, garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Do we do that? Do we do that? Does America do that? Does any people do that? Do we go back and try to find some old Comanche settlements and and do we bulldoze Austin to, to rebuild a Comanche settlement somewhere? Nobody does that. Ancient ruins are gone until they are rebuilt and restored, until they become, you know, is it, is it cool that they're building life-size arcs, you know, arc museums or Bible museums or other things? Those, those are replicas. In the millennium, they get to rebuild the real places. They get to rebuild Kadesh Barnea. They get to rebuild Shiloh. They get to rebuild every place that's ever been destroyed. They get to rebuild it in the millennium so they can teach the Gentiles the Scriptures. Think about a walk through the Bible when you're walking through the rebuilt Holy Land. Okay, Today you can go see the Holy Land, but what are you seeing? Modern Jerusalem, a few glimpses of the old city, a few glimpses of a little bit, a wailing wall. You also see a, a stupid mosque sitting up there and you see a bunch of other stuff. Guess what? There's a huge rebuilding program The millennium will feature unique ministry of Jews to Gentiles. And a part of this ministry is going to be ruin reconstruction. (laughs) Okay? And that's not gap theory I'm talking about. Ruin reconstruction. I'm talking about... Some of you got that. Uh, I'm talking about rebuilding these things that had been destroyed. You know, when he gave tribal allotments to those 12 tribes, do you think he meant it? Was that only for the time being? If a certain city was allotted to Dan, guess what? Dan's going to have that city. He may have to rebuild it in the millennium, but he's going to have that city. Interestingly enough. Of course, there's other changes that take place, topographical changes that take place. Ezekiel describes some of that. Israel will engage in ruined reconstruction. By the way, this is not possible on the new earth. That's why we know this is millennial not fullness of time, okay? Because in the new heavens and new earth, those ruins, not only are they gone, but they're not even remembered anymore. Former things are not brought to mind in the new heavens and new earth. But in order to restore ancient ruins, this has to be a millennial prophecy. It takes place during the, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And as I mentioned, I think they're rebuilding all these lost sites. And some of them we're only guessing at anyway. We're wondering, you know, we think Sodom and Gomorrah might be here, might be there. There's a hundred opinions. Maybe under the Dead Sea, whatever. Okay? We're going to have the real sites. We're going to forever end the argument about which mountain is Mount Sinai. We're going to forever end the route of the Exodus debate. It's going to be reconstructed. Okay? They're going to rebuild the Holy Land like Universal Studios built Hogwarts. Okay? They create this whole Harry Potter world. And you go there and you think you're in a movie. Imagine Israel rebuilding the Old Testament. 
Imagine. That's what we have here. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. This is more than just recovering from a seven-year tribulation. Okay? It usually gets preached like, well, they're they're overcoming the, the tribulation wrath. No. This is many generations. This is all of Old Testament history here. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. In fact, all of the Gentiles are going to be doing all the labor because Israel is going to be doing all the teaching. You will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Indeed, of your shame, instead of your shame, you will have double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. You know, in so many ways, this is the new covenant we've been studying in other places, okay? This new covenant is coming. It's going to replace the Mosaic covenant. It's going to be eternal. They cannot break it. It's unconditional. It's eternal. Then their offspring will be known among the nations. Every Jewish person. They're going to be known. Wow, that's a Jew. Not only is that a Jew, but they're from the tribe of Zebulun. They're from the tribe of Asher. Every single one identifiable and recognized and appreciated and esteemed. All who see them will recognize them. Not because they got a yellow star on their shirt. Okay? But because God will equip every Gentile to know his people on this planet. You know, why? how was it that when Abraham looked across the gulf, he knew who that rich man was? I mean, how did he just see this guy there in hell and go, oh, you're that rich guy that had everything going for him on earth. You're the rich guy that had the house that Lazarus was laying outside. How did Abraham know that? Abraham didn't know him on earth, but he knew him in the resurrection. Okay? I believe every Gentile will know every Jew in the millennium. They'll know them for them, for, them, for their tribe, for their descendants. They'll know their tribe, they'll know their clan, they'll know their family. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Wow, you're of the tribe of Judah. You're of the clan of Ephrathah. You're of the, of the house of Jesse. Wow, okay? And the Gentiles will have the opportunity to glorify Jesus Christ through the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom. Even Isaiah gets a chance to think about that day, what he's looking forward to in verses 10 and 11. Let's look at some of these things. So ruin reconstruction. That is millennial. It cannot be a fullness of time because it's on this earth. It's not on the next earth. Not possible on the next earth. Even if they could remember the old sites, which Scripture says they won't. This earth won't be remembered on the new earth. Gentiles will perform secular work so the Jews can engage in their national priesthood ministry toward the Gentiles. Gentiles will do all the secular work. All right? You know, when, a, when a, 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 a church says, we don't want our pastor working in the jail anymore, eight years is long enough of that, we want you full-time now in the church. And they, they provide the full-time support so the pastor doesn't have to do secular work. And the pastor's got a whole lot more time to study when he's not in jail 40 hours a week. All right? That's a benefit. 
And the congregation is blessed when they set their pastor apart to support him that way. I'm praying for Lost Pines right now. I want him to set Cliff apart. All right? I've been praying for that forever. Okay? Same thing in the Old Testament. Levites were set apart. Priests were set apart. They didn't have their, their they didn't have a land grant. They didn't have a secular. They were supported by the, the tribes. They ate based on the offerings of what were brought in. The, the, the laborer is worthy of his hire. The, the priests who minister in the temple, they were supported by the offerings that came in. Now imagine that on a national basis. Because in Israel, it was only one tribe, the Levi, supported by the other 11 tribes. But the initial call in Exodus 19 says, you as a nation will be priests before me. Not just Levi, the whole nation is a kingdom of priests. The whole nation is going to serve in this capacity to the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. Gentiles will perform secular work so the Jews can engage in their national priesthood ministry towards the Gentiles. And we already read verses 5 through 7 here about this, about double portion. That's what double portion is. Double portion is not working and still eating, right? <laughs> doesn't the Bible say if a man does not work, neither let him eat? Okay. Well, double portion. The pastor cannot work and still eat because the flock is supporting him. Okay. Anyway, double portion. And uh, you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. Now, they could have done that in the Old Testament, and they didn't. They actually were given that promise in Exodus 19, and then they backed off and said, oh, no, no, no. Moses, you go up there and tell us, you know, you, you intercede for us. Moses, you go up there and come back and tell us what God says. And then they're given Levi as a priestly tribe. But the nation was called as priests before they were given Levi as a priestly tribe. Um, now I'm going to pay for my earlier rambling by having to rush through this. But Exodus 19 in verses 3 through 6, just notice, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now keep in mind, if everything must be fulfilled, when was that fulfilled? It wasn't fulfilled in the Old Testament. They weren't a kingdom of priests. They had a priestly tribe, Levi. All right? But they become a kingdom of priests in the millennial reign, as we're seeing today in Isaiah 61. And all the Gentiles will do the secular work so that the kingdom of priests can minister to them in the, in the millennial reign. What a delight is that going to be? And of course, the new covenant with Israel gets made. We've been doing a lot of new covenant studies. This was a part of our Galatians class when we had the allegory in Galatians chapter 4. The two women are two covenants. There's Mount Sinai, which is Mosaic law, and then there's heavenly Jerusalem that is new covenant. Okay, The new covenant with Israel. It's going to mark every Jewish person as a recipient of the Lord's blessing. Every Jewish person as a recipient of the Lord's blessing. This one's mine. This one's mine. This one's mine. Okay? And it's kind of interesting. I, you know, 
babies are fun. You look at babies and, you know, you can, you can spot kids. And, and in, in a lot of cases, it's very obvious uh, who the, the, the child is a child of, okay? Because of somebody's ears or nose or eyes or whatever, all right? And you go, oh, okay. We know who your dad is, all right? I was, I was accused of cloning my kids, but um, in any event, it helps, okay? If, uh, but now every Jewish person is going to be known as belonging to the Lord at a glance, at a glance. Their race, their kingdom, their tribe, their clan, their family, at a glance. The new covenant will mark every Jewish person. See, the Mosaic covenant had a sign, but it was a sign, uh, it wasn't readily visible. <laughs> okay? Circumcision. It was kept kind of, you know, it, it was not on visible display for any Gentile to look at and go, oh. But in the millennial kingdom, every Jew, the visible sign of the Lord upon his people, going to be evident to every Gentile that looks at a Jewish person. We dealt with this in chapter 44, verses 3 through 5. Oh, now I'm going fast. 44, 3 through 5. That's okay, the third part will be real fast. I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams in the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. That one will call on the name Jacob. Another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord and will name Israel's name with honor. They will all be marked, okay? And these aren't uh, Nazi tattoos in a concentration camp, all right? This is the marking of his people for the glory of his people. Jeremiah 31, that's our new covenant passage, 31 through 34. We'll be there next year. Let's see, what do we got? We got five more chapters in, and then 31 chapters. So 36 weeks from now, we'll be in Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the day I took them by the hand. Okay? This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor. In the Old Testament, Levi had to teach the other tribes. won't happen in the millennium. Everybody will have God's law in their heart, every Jewish person. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Zechariah 8.23. Kind of vivid. I like it. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah 8.23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. Can you imagine? You're in such high demand that ten Gentiles are going to be grabbing the hem of your garment saying, can I be your disciple? Can I learn from you? You're a Jew. Teach me. And every Jewish person, the least of them, will have the law of Yahweh in their heart and they will be teaching the Gentile nations. They will be in prophetic office. Finally, Isaiah anticipated his resurrection millennial wardrobe. The last two verses here of Isaiah 61 Not everybody takes it this way. I I, I conclude and think this is probably the best way to handle it. 
Will I change my mind 10 years from now? And I don't know. I wonder, if I ever teach Isaiah verse by verse by verse, how much better am I going to understand this instead of chapter by chapter by chapter? But anyway, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Now, he's either still speaking in first person on behalf of Jesus Christ, or he has actually now shifted to his own personal views what he himself is personally looking forward to when Isaiah is resurrected and he gets there. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I think he's speaking of the human experience here for resurrected Israel that are being dressed this way for their wedding feast. As the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause the righteous, righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. See, the church will already possess her resurrection wardrobe. We get that in the tribulation. We get that in heaven. We're wearing those garments when we come back for Armageddon. The church will already possess her resurrection wardrobe, but Israel will likewise be dressed in wedding celebration garments, these garments that will teach the principles of salvation and righteousness. All right, well, I'm out of time. If you want to do more on that, go study a parable Jesus taught about some um, rascal that gets into the wedding feast and he's not dressed right. Okay? And think, well, wait a minute. If, if Yahweh is doing the dressing here for Israel in this chapter, then who's that rascal sneaking in? He doesn't even know why he's there. <laughs> okay? Well, sounds to me like a clueless Gentile that needs instruction. First of all, he needs to get saved. <coughs> all right. Next week is chapter 62. And I know I spent a ton of time on the hermeneutic principle. Seems like the bulk of this hour was on verse 1 and 2a. But it's, it's huge, all right? It is absolutely huge that we get that out of Isaiah 61. Next week, we get uh, chapter 62. And on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've appointed watchmen. If you don't know the value of a corporate prayer meeting, if you don't know the value of being in your armor and on the wall with your fellow soldiers then Isaiah 62 is, uh, is your chapter. And we'll deal with this next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this book. Thank you for all the wealth of doctrine you're teaching. And I know it's fast. Father, I know we're drinking from a fire hose. We are just gleaning bits here and there. We're, you're giving us a big picture, Father. And I pray that it would stimulate us. It would stimulate us to study even deeper, to take this big picture and then drill down to the, to the detail. Thank you so much, Father, for all you provide, for your grace, for the wisdom of your plan. That when we think it's fallen short, that's only our finite understanding. Every purpose of thine will be done. No purpose of thine can be thwarted. What you have said, you will do. And I thank you for that, Father, because you have said that I have eternal life in your Son. And I'm thankful, Father, that you must fulfill that. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.